Whether you're an entrepreneur, event planner, political organizer, video producer, cattle farmer, fashion designer, architect, real estate agent, or magazine editor, Airtable can help you create your way. Learn more and get a special offer for the Founders Project listeners at Airtable.com slash Founders Project. Welcome to Inks, the Founders Project with Alexa Von Tobel. I'm Alexa, founder of LearnBest, author of the New York Times bestselling book, Financially Fearless, the forthcoming book, Financially Forward, and most recently, founder and managing partner of Inspired Capital, a venture firm committed to investing in founders who are building our future. Each week, I love to sit down with a top entrepreneur to share their story of guts, inspiration, and drive. This week, we have an incredible guest, uh, Jonathan Neiman, co-founder and CEO of Sweetgreen, the cult salad brand that has quickly become so much more than that. Jonathan opened the first Sweetgreen in Washington, D.C. in 2007, along with two of his classmates at Georgetown. Since then, it has swept the nation with over 100 retail locations. The company's raised over $300 million in venture financing has been one of the most innovative companies by Fast Company. Welcome, Jonathan. We're so thrilled to have you. Hi, thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. For anybody who hasn't met Jonathan, he's just a lovely person. He is kind and warm and easy to talk to. And I just can completely see you behind the helm of Sweetgreen. For those of us who haven't heard you talk about Sweetgreen, can you just give us in your own words what the vision is and what you're really trying to accomplish? Yeah, of course. Uh, Well, thank you again for having me. It's very, very cool to be here. So at Sweetgreen, we believe our mission is to build healthier communities by connecting people to real food. So our goal is to change the fast food industry by serving sustainable, healthy, real food at scale. We believe that real food should be sustainable, accessible, and convenient to everyone. And so to do that, we're building what we call a real food platform to democratize the access to this food, really, and not just do it in in some communities, but do it at scale. So what that means today is we have about 100 restaurants around the country um, where you can access them both in-store, on your mobile app, delivered at your home, delivered at your office, or other places through Outpost. And it's that connect, that direct connection with our consumers and a direct connection with our farmers, which makes our experience what it is. Can you quickly tell us, what was the aha moment behind Sweet Green? I mean, first of all, I love the name. Everyone in my house eats it all the time, including my four-year-old, by the way. It's so cute. I mean, we are very proud that she eats a lot of vegetables. I'm so excited is that the, the younger generation is actually eating this kind of food. And that's what gets me most excited about what we're doing. I mean, it really is so cool. But what was the aha moment for you? Like, really, what was the kind of core inspiration when you're like, this is what I should go do with my life? Yeah, you know, so the I met my two co-founders when I was in school at Georgetown. Uh, I grew up here in, in Los Angeles. I was in D.C. and I met Nicholas my first day at Georgetown. He was in the dorm next door to me. And I met Nathaniel the first day of class, Counting 101. And we bonded over first entrepreneurship and wanting to create something from scratch. All of our parents were first-generation immigrants and entrepreneurs. And we really just loved this idea of wanting to create our own business. But secondly, we bonded over food. And you know, senior year came around, and it started with this problem in our own life, where we looked around, and you had two choices for food. It was either fast, cheap, well-marketed, but really, really bad for you, bad for the environment, or it was delicious, slow, expensive, and inaccessible. And it just kind of didn't make sense why in, in this world, 
you couldn't find food that was delicious, affordable, healthy, convenient, and a brand that stood for something and really a values-driven, mission-driven brand. And so it kind of seemed so simple uh, and right in front of our face of like, why has nobody created a healthy fast food company? Like, why can you get McDonald's all over the world? Why can you get Starbucks all over the world? Why is there nobody doing this for real food? And so it started with that simple idea of solving this problem in our own life. And then it went, you know, that we did two things. One, we started with creating a brand. Uh, for us, it wasn't about a product itself. It was about the why and the mission behind what we were doing. Uh, and secondly, it was about our supply chain. How could we go create really great relationships with farmers and growers? Because that was what was going to impact the taste of our product. And so that was kind of uh, our aha moment. We spent senior year writing a business plan, raising capital for that first restaurant. We raised $300,000 from almost 50 people, which meant about 200 people said no and 50 people said yes. So if you do the math, it's just a little more than $5,000 a person. So it was wow. kind of like wow. anyone with a piggy bank. But By the way, I'm sad I missed that investment. That's a big I, miss. I know. But at the time, you wouldn't have thought so because it was just, you know, three three kids in college with this idea to open a healthy fast food restaurant in a 500 square foot old burger shack. But we were very determined and we spent the year raising the money, building the restaurant and that summer, uh, summer of 2007, we opened our very first restaurant. Talk to me a little bit about, so as you mentioned, the brand. And Sweet Green is a phenomenal brand. How did you guys get that right? Like, first of all, where did you come up with the name Sweet Green? Tell us a little bit about that story. What's behind it? Yeah, so, you know, for us, again, it, people ask me a lot of, uh, you know, young entrepreneurs ask me like, hey, so how did you create this brand? Like, can you give me some advice? Like, did you work with an agency? And my advice is that you really can't manufacture a brand or I don't think you can manufacture a great brand and for us it was just very authentic to ourselves it was authentic to something we truly believed in and a lifestyle that we live something that we wanted to bring to the world and so for us uh, it was starting with the problem and then thinking about the solution not in terms of just a product but a platform or a greater why and a mission around how we approach things so it wasn't just, hey, the answer is salad. It was, here's how we believe in sourcing. Here's how we believe in making food from scratch. Here's how we believe in being students and stewards of our community. Here's how we believe in giving back. Here's how, what we think about connecting to culture. Here's how we believe in like meeting our customers in their lives, uh, really deeply within their lives and being obsessed and making their lives as easy as possible to live and eat this way. And so it was a brand founded upon an ethos more than a product. And so I'd say, you know, the outside of the brand has evolved a lot. The things we do, what we sell, how we serve it, but the why, the mission has not changed at all. It's been building healthier communities by connecting people to real food. The tenants of it have also been the same. It's been about authenticity uh, in terms of the food we serve. It, you know, we have a value to keep it real. It's from both how we make relationships to how we source food to how we make it within. We make all of our food in from scratch in every store every single day. Um, we source all of our food from farmers that we know. So that's like this authenticity piece. The second for us is a pillar is around cultural relevance. So how do we make healthy eating cool? Uh, we kind of looked around us, ourselves and saw these you know major brands that were able to tap into culture in a way 
the big example we to talk about is how is Coca-Cola associated with happiness when really it's killing people? How is McDonald's, you know, McDonald's sells happy meals and does ball pits. Why are healthy brands never associated with cool? How can, you know, why, why do healthy companies tell you to eat your vegetables, but you have these other brands that make this, that lifestyle so appealing. So for us, it was connecting to culture in interesting ways, whether it was throwing a music festival, connecting to music in, in ways, art, design, things like that, that really went beyond food. And then I think last and most importantly has been around impact. That's where we try to make our brand, our brand and our business go beyond the profitability that we create for our shareholders, but our impact on our communities. And that's what gets me really excited. It's how does our business serve a greater purpose? And I think that's what people really connect to. And that's both how we how we make an impact on our team members. You know, something we did today was we announced something that we've been doing for a while that our customers went crazy for is we told the world that we offer five months parental leave for both men and women, adopted children or anything for all of our employees in store and wow. otherwise. That's incredible. And for us, that was just what you should do. And we actually started doing it a while ago. We never even told the world. And then, you know, someone's like, hey, we should probably tell someone we did this. We announced it today and people went nuts. It's just like, it was just something that is core to who we are. We didn't do it to tell the world. We just did it because that's the right thing to do, you know? And so it's things like that about how we make an impact on our team members or how we make an impact on our communities. You know, a few months ago, we announced an expansion of a partnership with our Sweet Green Schools initiative, which is something that we started from the very early days, which was educating the next generation of eaters around what it means to eat healthy and also creating access points for them to eat healthy. And we were doing it on our own at, you know, relatively small scale, teaching, you know, 5,000 kids a year about healthy eating. A few months ago, we announced a million dollar investment in partnership with Food Corps and expanding this to tens of thousands of students over the next few years. So we're going to be opening in over 200 schools, taking over cafeterias and making, not only make, trying to market the food in a better way, but actually create access points for kids to eat healthy food that they think is cool. And so... That's like the, I think the most important pillar of our brand is this community and impact pillar, which, you know, has to come from that first pillar of authenticity, but I think is what really creates that emotional connection with our communities, what gets us really excited about what we're doing. I mean, I I literally love it. You're preaching to mom's heart here. I want to talk a little bit about, so you founded Sweet Green directly out of college. Um, I get that. I started Learn Best right out of college. You were young, you were hungry. What made you the right team to get this done? What was it when you rewind and you look back and you have like a bird's eye view, what made you guys successful? Yeah, it's a good question because when we started, this was really the first real job we ever had. We'd never worked in a restaurant. And to be honest, the three of us weren't necessarily best friends. We were good, good friends that respected each other. And people always ask, like, how does it work? Three founders for a long time, three co-CEOs. I'd say the, the things that, that we had going for us is one, we knew nothing, but we knew we, that we knew nothing. So that naivete or like beginner's mindset that we've maintained until today of like not being afraid to ask questions, approach every problem with a blank sheet of paper, not, oh, here's how it's done. It, it's, it starts with how should this be done? I think if we had started, you know, 2007, if we had ever opened a restaurant before, we would have never thought to go directly to farmers to source food 
or had the audacity to open a restaurant in 500 square feet. It makes, we, I would never do that today. <laughs> uh, knowing what I know today, I would, just, I would never do that. But we didn't know any better, and so we did it, and we approached the problem from how can we, not how can't we. And so that was one. The second, uh, I think, was a mutual respect and humility between the three of us, really having a shared vision and all, each willing to wear whatever hat necessary to get it done. And I think the entrepreneur story, as you very well know, it's it's uh, it's made uh, it's glamorized uh, in the press of like, okay, st- you know, started in college or started in a basement somewhere, and then next thing you know, billion dollar company, and like the stories in between are often forgotten. Those stories of all along the way for that for that time, you're on the verge of like bankruptcy and not making just <laughs> as much as on the verge of world domination. I like to say, yep. You're, it's, you're literally like on the head of a pin of like kind of balancing between the two. And I think for us, it was it was just that shared commitment, that shared vision and the resiliency of not willing to give up. And there were so many times that we should have or could have, but it was just believing in it so much and willing to do whatever it took to kind of learn and get past it. And I think the, the last piece was that we shared, you know, we kind of had agreed upon way of working, these shared values, which was our filter in terms of how we made decisions. And that was the foundation for our culture of how the three of us made decisions, but then how we brought on other people and how we, how we made decisions and treated people as a collective. And so I think those were kind of the things that brought us together. I can't believe that you guys like share an office. And to your point, I think there's something pretty authentic about everything that you do. I can only imagine that that's made you a better spouse, given that you had to learn to negotiate with two people. Uh, uh, am I right? Am, am I right? Yeah, it's be funny when we were, uh, you know, when I when I got I got married two years ago, and you know when we were, you know, doing a lot, you know, buying a house together, bank account, all that stuff. I was like, oh, I've done this before. And she's like, really? I'm like, yeah, with Nate, I've, you know, we've, you know, we've had the shared bank account, I've had the, you know, we've had a mortgage together, we've shared office space, like we're, we've done all that stuff. So it definitely has helped uh, teach us a lot about uh, partnership like, across across all of our life, not just in business. Was there one moment in your partnership that was like a big one in your head that can be good or bad? But was there one moment that was like make or break it that you can remember that will like never leave your brain? I don't know if it's it's one moment, but it's it's just the an ongoing like inherent trust and lack of judgment for how each person decides to work and and get like just trust that we all have like the positive intent and are going to get it done. So it's you know and in the early days, whether it's like how we take time off, you know how much time we spend working, how much time we we spend off. Things like that and just that that commitment, it was just an always on like shared trust that we were all giving it our like everything we had, no matter how it looked on the like how it like appeared. Because sometimes when you're in it, you're like, if yeah. you're there late, I, is the person next to me there late? Yep. But it was just knowing that, okay, they're, they're not there late, they're there early or they're going to like do they're Everyone's pulling their own weight equally. Yep. And I think we all held each other accountable from an early stage to to pull our own weight. And with that, we'll be right back after this. In the 1990s, an engineer and avid bird watcher named Eiji Nakatsu was fascinated by the way the kingfisher could dive into the water without making a splash. 
He later designed a new high-speed train for Japan Railway West based on the shape of the Kingfisher's beak, which broke world speed records while reducing noise and energy consumption. This creative breakthrough is brought to you by Airtable. Learn more and get a special offer for Founders Project listeners at Airtable.com forward slash Founders Project. Um, so just let's totally shift gears. You guys have leveraged technology, I think, in some ways that are incredibly forward-looking. Just talk a little bit about your technology vision around Sweetgreen. And also, I'd love to just get your insights. And if you fast forward 10 years, where do you think the food industry is going? Yes. Um, so technology has always been a, a huge part of the Sweetgreen experience. We've always believed that technology can be a huge accelerator to a brand and a business. But technology is not our core product. And sometimes people ask me, like, so Sweetgreen a tech company? And the answer is no, Sweetgreen is not a technology company. Technology is not our core product. At our core, we're a mission-driven brand and a food company. That's what we sell. Um, it's, it's an ethos, a feeling, and a prod- our product is food. However, we use technology embedded in our core and built from a native perspective to enhance our experience and create some competitive advantages in what we do. So... Uh, we leverage technology across the full stack of the sweet green experience from how we source our food and our digitized supply chain built on blockchain so we can show that transparency, not only in terms of how we manage the supply chain ourselves, but being able to show that transparency and create that trust with our customers. Next is how we leverage technology within our kitchens and restaurants, how we can leverage both really leverage data in interesting ways for how we run our restaurants and then how we build technology within our four walls to bring this idea of intimacy at scale or making food from scratch at scale to life. So that's creating tools such as dynamic oven apps and labor schedulers and uh, you know things that help our team members know exactly what to make when uh, is the next piece. Then the, the core piece uh, of our technology is the consumer piece. Uh, today, 50% of our orders come through our mobile app. That's between people that are either ordering ahead and picking up or customers that are using their mobile app to pay. What this does is this gives us a direct connection with our customers uh, and lets us really build a deeper relationship with them. And for them, it makes eating healthy, delicious food a lot more frictionless. So we were very early in realizing that you can't just bolt on technology onto an experience. You have to kind of think about it all the way through. So when we decided to build our mobile app, it was let's not just build a mobile app and have people walk up to the counter and ask for their food. Let's redesign the whole restaurant built around the fact that there's a mobile app where people can order ahead to skip the line. And that's kind of how we think about everything when it comes to like this merging of physical and digital. How does the technology integrate with the physical with the physical environment to create a better experience? So today we're uh, we continue to invest in technology in an even more accelerated way. Uh, we're launching native delivery later this year, where you'll you'll be able to order delivery directly on the Sweetgreen app. Uh, last year we launched what we call Sweetgreen Outpost, which is a virtual Sweetgreen anywhere. So we have about 200 of them around the country today. Uh, places like WeWork or office buildings coming soon to hospitals and universities and high schools where you can go on your Sweetgreen app, order Sweetgreen to one of these locations and pick up at a specified drop-off time. 
Uh, so again, it's taking that idea of this, this healthy eating and just removing all the friction. Like before you had to order and walk to a store, now you order and just walk downstairs to the bottom of your office building. So these, those are the kind of the ways we're uh, leveraging technology today. I mean, I love it. It's it's literally, to your point, it's technologies everywhere from how do you get workers to do work to how do you help somebody who wants to get food and 50% doing it digitally and they can pick it up in lots of different locations and you can begin to customize and personalize. So as you think about the future and all of the growth that will come from 100 plus stores and beyond, how do you think about maintaining that brand and that incredible vision that you, I mean, I can hear it, it pours out of your like soul as you talk about Sweet Green, the authenticity. How do you, like, are there one or two rules that you're just like, this always has to stay the same? So for us, it's not about the same. It's, but I do have a mantra that, that I talk a lot about at Sweet Green, which is, you know, when you think about the world and companies, there's companies that as they get bigger, they get better. And there's companies that as they get bigger, they get worse really the product and the experience. And unfortunately, for the most part, or really for every example I can think of, most food companies, as they get bigger, they get worse, right? Every restaurant company at some point that you see at scale at some point when they were way smaller, it, it, the food was probably good. Like the one, even the ones that you kind of make fun of today, and I'm not gonna name any names, at one point the, that, that food quality was probably good and they had customers that loved it for a good reason. But as they got bigger, they started to sacrifice things and didn't really think about how to design a system that allowed them to maintain their quality at scale. And so for us, we have this, this grand idea that, uh, that you know we don't know if it's even possible, which we call intimacy at scale, which is can we do those things that make us special when we're small? Can we maintain that quality as we get bigger? So for us, that means as we get bigger, how do we use our scale to invest back in our experience, in our supply chain, in our product, in our team members, and do things so that when we are when we have thousands of restaurants versus when we had one restaurant, that food tastes better, that experience feel be- feels better, that brand has a bigger impact. So I think that's like the major thing that I look for in terms of how we continue to, uh, continue to preserve our brand as we get bigger. Um, the second I think is back to the impact pieces as you get bigger as a company i think you have more responsibility for both the message you send as well as your impact on communities so as we get bigger we take that responsibility more seriously around uh, around our responsibility to shape food culture to shape food policy and really shape the health of our communities you know the thing the stat that i always remember is that today 40 percent of People in the United States eat fast food every day. About a third of adults are obese. And about 90% of the healthcare costs in the U.S. could be preventable with better food. So as we think about like our big mission, thinking out like generationally, I'm not speaking out 100 stores or 1,000, but think about you know tens of millions of people eating sweet green every day. That's a decision not to eat processed food. And if everyone did that every single day, how would the environment the sustainability issues be different? How would our employee culture be different of uh, the jobs in America? And most importantly, the health of our of the people that live here, not just here, but, but globally. How could the food actually change their lives? And so we're starting, you know, we're at the very beginning of that journey. But over time, as we get bigger, how can we make a much bigger, massive impact on the health of the world? 
Well, again, uh, I I think it's so wonderful to just hear firsthand how big your vision is. You talk about policy, you talk about communities, you talk about um, healthcare costs and and all the things that we can do from my little four-year-old daughter eating a salad, and I couldn't agree with you more. I want to just quickly shift gears a little bit to you, which is, you know, you've gone from, again, a super small uh, sweet green in Georgetown that you said, you know, you probably wouldn't have gotten such a small space if you could do it all over again to really building a movement. And again, uh, I think a culture that you can feel just if you touch it, if you walk past it. And what I want to get a sense of is how have you had to evolve over the last decade? What do you think is the one or two things that just professionally you've had to focus on so that you can continue to scale, especially as your job definitely changes? Yeah, my job changes very often. Uh, really, I you know almost every week my role has shifted. Um, and so some of the things uh, that I focused on is just continuous development and taking that into my own hands. So how do I surround myself with both professional help, I have an executive coach, to uh, non-professional help, which is mentors and friends and a community of other entrepreneurs who have done it, uh, asking for advice in terms of not just the, you know, how to do the work, but how to lead a team and build build an organization. And I think as an entrepreneur, you're kind of, leading, you're kind of naturally wired to how do you start something and do it yourself? You just naturally just want to do it all yourself yeah. to there's this transition point, which you, you know very well, which is yeah. okay, how do you build an organization? How do you do less and empower others to do more? Um, and that's a lot about infrastructure, system, process, uh, governance. But it's, it's you know, we call it at Sweetgreen, we call it an OS, an operating system yep. for organization, which takes into consideration our purpose, our structure, authority, mastery, compensation, all of these like buckets of how we work together as an organization yep. and it's a, it's a shifting of gears. And I think for me, uh, some of the things that I've done recently uh, to, to really focus on that is taking a step back and trying to take myself out of the crazy, whether that's on Saturdays where I don't touch a phone and really try to step away or on Sundays where I try to do, you know, kind of like what I call like blank sheet of paper work where it's just thinking, not just, going through an inbox, but a little bit bigger, you know, thinking about the OS, thinking about the vision and making sure to create time for that. Because I think as an entrepreneur, you're so used to being so busy and like just filling the calendar and like going through the to-do list. And it's a retraining yourself that, that like, it's actually good to have some days that you don't have fully packed and you can focus on quality of decisions and thinking and leading versus, uh, versus, uh, just doing and but that's it's it's definitely something that i haven't fully figured out yet and i continue to work on are there one or two productivity hacks that you just live by productivity hacks i do uh make a lot of lists both on and have a carry notebook with me everywhere so lists always always kind of like the day before of what needs to be done that next day so i kind of know what i'm walking into I meditate twice a day. I think it's my most important, my biggest productivity hack. That's amazing. I'm so, pr- I'm, pr- I'm so proud to hear that. Yeah. You med- are you a meditator? Yeah, I'm actually just starting to get into it, but I, uh, it's just so impressive that you are able to uh, get yourself to slow down. That's incredible. 
that's one of those things that like for years I said I I was important to me and I would do it whenever I could. And then almost a year ago, I decided that it was just going to become a non-negotiable and realized that those just 20 minutes twice a day, how much more productive and clear I was able to become. This totally explains it. Um, I described you after just meeting you in Miami. I was like, he's a really peaceful guy. There's just something very peaceful about him. Um, you have figured out a way to scale a you know billion dollar business um, with like crazy all around it and be peaceful. And, and now I know why. I feel like I totally better understand. <laughs> well, thank you. It's a quite a compliment. You asked me a question about how I see food changing uh, in in ten years in the to give you just a couple of thoughts on that. I know it's, it's uh, just jumping back, but I do think it's really what's going to happen in the next 10 years in food is akin to kind of what's happened over the past 10 years in media and seeing this shift from like DVDs and theaters and cable to streaming, uh, specifically uh, on-demand food delivery, I expect to probably 10x over the next 10 years. Um, people will maybe making less food at home and going out for food less, but they will be ordering food at home that I believe uh, companies hopefully like us will create, be able to create really, really quality uh, food at home. So I think delivery, you know, you saw streaming just took over 50, it just like past the 50% mark of the market. Yep. yep. I think, you know, food delivery is probably on its way there in probably about 10 years. Uh, the second thing is around transparency. Uh, customers, are going to start, especially this in these next generations of customers, are going to start demanding to know where their food came from and have a different uh, belief in terms of the health, sustainability, and quality of their food. Uh, so I think that you know people just putting whatever in their body and not connecting how, what they eat and how it makes them feel, I think those days are soon going to be over. Agreed. And that'll be very much empowered by technology. Imagine like, Having a device that kind of knows that when you eat something, it affects you in negative ways. Are you still going to do it? Um, and I think because of that, companies are, you know, this idea of personalized food and personalized nutrition is really going to take off. Today, you have personalized content and playlists and things like that. It knows exactly what you want to watch or listen to, but everybody kind of sees the same menu no matter where you go. Uh, I, I see that personalization in food has huge potential for it beyond how you see personalization a lot of in a lot of the use cases today, which is around marketing, like personalized message, but you're getting the same product. Personalization in food and nutrition is actually personalizing the product to your taste, lifestyle, and health. And so those are three, three of the major uh, kind of shifts I predict for the next 10 years. I have this visualization of what you just said, which is that literally food will be streaming um meaning exactly that right. <laughs> at, at any time you can get any meal and the family doesn't have to per se eat the same food every night um and it can be affordable in a way where we can all eat really healthful food delivered in a timely fashion um and i i to your point when we have things like autonomous cars that can quickly deliver it to your front door overnight more time also goes back in our hands. The cleanup of time goes back in our hands. And I actually, as a mom, I envision a nighttime routine that's not insane. So I'm hoping it's not 10 years away. I'm hoping it's faster. Um, so it's mine. We're going to do our best to make it happen as fast as we can. Yes, please, sooner. Make it, make it happen. Um, I'll happily bet on you to do that. Um, so I just want to end on two quick questions. 
as you think about the hiring culture, and you've, it's just so abundantly clear you believe in investing in people and five months parental leave for everybody. I mean, that's just truly brilliant. As you think about allowing somebody to join the Sweet Green family, what is your favorite interview question? I love to always ask this, but what's the one question that you, you feel like helps you get to the core of somebody or is just one that you like because it illuminates something that matters to you? What is it? So I focus my whole interview on really one thing, which is how someone learns. So I really focus it on, you know, tell me something, what did you learn? Like, tell me that, what did you learn? And it's, I think it's that self-reflection and that ability, that lifelong learning or curiosity about self-development that I really look for. Because, you know, I'd rather bet on the person that is five years, let's say less experienced but is developing at a 10x rate, then, you know, think about like investing in a company. Would you rather invest in the company that's valued at $10 million growing at 200% a year or the company that's valued at 2x that but growing at 4% a year? You know, you bet on the company or the person that has that like rapid acceleration. And for me, talking to someone about what they've learned throughout their experiences uh, helps me kind of illuminate that. I love that. You're like, searching for the prove to me that you're high potential and high yeah. velocity. Um, exactly. I'm looking for high velocity because in the rest you can see on a resume. If you already gotten to that point, like you probably have the rest. I'm looking for that high velocity. Are you going to be able to grow at the pace of sweet cream? Not only do I love it, but I always joke, ABL, always be learning. Our future is everything around us will constantly be evolving in such rapid paces that if, you, if you're not a fast learner, you not only can you not keep up, but the entire world quickly gets quite intimidating when it's all evolving. Last question, outside of Sweetgreen, what's one startup or cool thing that you have your eye on? It literally can be an entrepreneur, it can be a startup, it can be a trend that you just think is super fascinating. There's this one uh, that I've been following recently called the Lambda School. Yeah. Have you seen that? Yeah. Uh, I think it's just brilliant. Um, Again, talking about like streaming content, but changing education. Uh, around the world and creating more opportunities for people at a kind of a low, I mean, a zero cost of entry and helping people advance in their careers while also providing an opportunity for company, you know, companies that are, are dying to hire more engineers and data scientists and product managers. It's just like solving such a problem. So for, for those of you that don't know, it's a, essentially an online coding school, uh, but has a really unique business model in which you pay nothing upfront and pay a percentage of your salary once you're hired for the first two years and they kind of help you get a job and the curriculum is just best in class in terms of getting you ready for the for that real world and you can do it anywhere you know and it's what's cool is it's live i also think it's cool that it's not just recorded it's live real classes with great teachers Uh, so i think that approach is really really brilliant and it's going to solve a huge problem and i think it'd be a pretty massive company ABL, always be learning, always be always be evolving. I think what you just nailed is the retooling that we will all do as young people. We will just constantly keep evolving our own skill sets. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us today. If you want to learn more about Sweetgreen, you can check out sweetgreen.com or obviously just find one of the fabulous locations near you and walk in. Thank you guys so much. Please tune in next week for Inks, the Founders Project with Alexa Von Tobel. Thank you so much, Jonathan. Thank you, Alexa. Thank you all for listening. You can subscribe to Inks the Founders Project with Alexa Montobel wherever your podcasts are offered.
My book, Financially Forward, comes out May 14th. You can find it wherever books are sold, and it will help you understand everything about the future of your wallet and all the best ways to save, spend, and keep your wallet secure.